This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. It is week 31, working from home for so many still. The presidential election got closer, more coronavirus relief stimulus got farther away, and we had a lot of conversations about working from home versus getting back to the office. Not everyone agrees on that. Well, coming up this week... Disruption is an opportunity for innovation and new thought. Former mayor of Kansas City, Sly James, on the impact of the virus on education and getting out the vote. Plus, there will be a lot of changes as we move forward. Bringing back Broadway with the president of the Broadway League. We begin, though, first with the presidential election. Now just a little more than two weeks out, Florida has become a battleground when it comes to the November elections. And as Josh Green writes, Florida seniors could seal President Trump's fate on election night. Bloomberg's Paul Sweeney and I caught up with Josh, national correspondent at Bloomberg Businessweek, along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber. As Josh writes uh, in this dispatch, um, it, we're really looking at an outcome here that for Trump to have any um, real certainty of, of getting back and retaining the, the Oval Office, he really needs Florida. And so the Democrat strategy is obviously to try and take Florida out of his hands. But what Josh actually gets into here is the, the there are some early numbers that we're seeing from Florida and the swing among seniors um, which uh, is a, a demographic that Trump had had locked down last election is just 180 and is already in early numbers is is veering towards Biden. Josh, what does that mean in the grand scheme of things? Well, basically what it means is if the current trends continue, uh, Trump isn't going to win Florida. And if Trump doesn't win Florida, he's not going to win the election. Um, but what's so interesting about this is we've all been reading about these nightmare scenarios where states don't count their vote and it's thrown out for weeks and the election is contested. What's great about Florida is that it counts its votes early as they come in. So about 20% of the votes, the early votes already cast in the 2020 general election, uh, have been cast in Florida and have already been counted. And Florida updates those numbers. So what we did was took a look at who was voting early, and the, the thing that really jumped out was that seniors, voters age 65 and older, older were voting at a 10 times greater clip in 2020 than they were at this point four years ago. And if you look at the poll numbers, we wrote about this in our election issue of Business Week in September, uh, a group that I called Swinging Seniors. Uh, <laughs> seniors supported Trump by not necessarily what you think it might mean, so I better explain. Seniors supported Trump by about 17 point margin in 2016. Uh, the latest polls in Florida have Biden winning seniors by 15 points. Wow. So if you add those two things together, a huge swing to Biden among seniors and a huge outpouring of support, uh, it isn't surprising that this is good news for Biden. And if it keeps up at this pace, uh, what I say is we, we'll know on election night uh, whether or not Biden has won Florida, and if he has, I think there's a very good chance that he's going to be president. So, Josh, what has the president, quote-unquote, done wrong? Certainly not for lack of effort down there. He was just down there again campaigning. What's really been the change? Well, uh, there have been two things. I mean, number one, and the easy answer is COVID. He was down there at a gigantic maskless rally in Orlando, um, which, as you might imagine, uh, spooks an awful lot of seniors. If you look at the main driver of the senior vote, it's been Trump's handling of the COVID pandemic. Uh, doesn't seem to have a lot of inspired a lot of confidence among older voters. Not necessarily surprising, but you know, as I say in the piece, the big question about early voting is: 
are these new voters? Is this is this genuine enthusiasm, or have older voters simply moved up when they cast their ballot? Are these just people who'd vote anyway on election day, deciding to vote early through the mail because it seems safer? Um, that's certainly some of it. But the other interesting factor here is that it appears to be much broader than that and much broader than COVID. Because if you go back and look at the uh, results of the 2018 midterm elections, there was, once again, a huge spike in senior voters. And, of course, that predated COVID. So what we can conclude from that is that seniors are much more eager to vote and seem to be much more willing to vote for Democrats now than they were in 2016. And if those trends continue in Florida, uh, where they're especially pronounced because there are so many old people there, uh, it, it really spells bad news for Trump. Well, and what's interesting is you have to think – Josh, that the Trump camp is a little bit worried because you think about the video that he did, you know, after coming out of the hospital, it was aimed directly at seniors. Yeah. So when Trump was was cooped up in the White House, when he was still contagious with coronavirus, he shot a, a kind of an awkward cheerleading video on the on the lawn of the West Wing. Um, that was aimed at reassuring seniors, you know, I love you, I care about you, you know, so on and so forth. I think that was a clear reflection that his campaign staff was looking at the same numbers I am and seeing themselves, uh-oh, you know, unless we change the minds of these senior voters pouring out to the polls and, and to the post office to mail their ballot, we're going to be in real big trouble. Let's try and turn this around now. I think the problem is, you know, it, it's really hard to change public impression of how you handle the pandemic if you come out of the hospital sick with COVID and then turn around 10 days later and have a maskless rally like Trump did in Florida. That's Bloomberg Businessweek national correspondent Josh Green, who's also author of Devil's Bargain, Steve Bannon, Donald Trump and the Nationalist Uprising, along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber. We know it was a busy week when it came to politics. The president's certainly out there on the campaign trail. So, too, was the Biden campaign and an interesting development because we heard that Democratic vice presidential nominee Kamala Harris, she canceled her travel until Monday after her communications director and a member of her flight crew tested positive for COVID-19. So some developments along the campaign trail. Speaking of the election, he's been working on getting out the vote and also writing the world when it comes to injustices. We're going to check in with former Kansas City Mayor Sly James. That's coming up next. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. So common themes through many of our interviews throughout the week on our daily show had to do with the two pandemics facing our country. We're talking about the virus and racial injustice. Bloomberg's Paul Sweeney and I got into that with our next guest. Known for his bow ties when he was mayor of Kansas City, Sly James is now focusing on building cities for our children, prioritizing education. He had a book that came out over the summer, The Opportunity Agenda, A Bold Democratic Plan to Grow the Middle Class. We talked education, we talked the pandemic, and of course, getting out the vote. This pandemic and the economic economic upheaval that's caused along with the social upheaval. It's kind of like the perfect storm. Every fissure and crack in our society is being opened and laid bare. People are able to see it. And one thing about uh, these, uh, these disruptive times is disruption is an opportunity for innovation and new thought. And if we look at it like that and recognize that we've got problems and work on them, we may be able to bring some new ideas to the forefront and solve some of these problems. Sly, how about in, in terms of education? Kids around the country are back at school, some virtually, some physically, some 
hybrid uh, model. But what we've seen from last spring and, and now in the fall here is minority students are really at risk here of, I guess, falling through the cracks or certainly at a disadvantage in this new virtual learning environment. What are your thoughts there? Uh, well, first of all, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think minority students, but I'm going to broaden it out and say children who live in poverty uh, are, are all uh, at an extreme disadvantage. They do not have access to the resources. They do not have access to broadband. They do not have access to the hardware. They do not have access to the innovative ideas that money and uh, higher resource levels are able to bring that their more well-heeled counterparts do. Um, the problem that we have, of course, is that it would be one thing if we were at the top of the heap and we were talking about an incremental fall that puts us someplace in the middle of the pack. But we're not at the top of the heap as a society in education. We're falling faster and faster behind other countries. So every kid in this country is falling behind our competitors around the world. And our kids at the bottom of the ladder are about to slip off and fall into the abyss. These problems have been there. Uh, they are now just being laid bare and open uh, because of this pandemic has forced us to look at them in a different way. It's not uh, the good news is, is that people are looking at them in a different way and maybe some incremental change is going to happen. But without a systemic approach to it, without an intentional approach to it, we're going to continue to have the same education gaps that we've always had. They may shrink a little, but it's now time to look at it for what it really is a disaster for the long-term economy of this country and fix it. Well, what you just said, a systemic approach, it's a systemic problem, so it needs a systemic approach. So if, if you could list, I don't know, a couple of things that we need to do already, because I'm so tired of the conversation. I'm not tired of the conversation. I'm tired of people talking about it, but not doing something. What would you say we need to do, Sly? Well, first of all, I think we need to find political leadership that's not afraid to lose. Um, and by that, I mean... We can't have leaders who will do anything to stay in office, even if it means giving up ideas and ideals that they know are valuable. We've got to have people that are willing to say, I'm going to fight for this, and if I lose, I lose, but I'm going to fight for it. Uh, we need sustained leadership to focus on this. And, this and, and it can't be subject to the normal old uh, Democratic-Republican rebound uh, philosophy that we see so often, where one party gets in, does something, dribbles the ball for a bit, the other ball comes in and steals the uh, other team comes in and steals the ball and dribbles in the opposite direction so that at the end of the day, neither side is doing much of anything except dribbling away from each other. We need people who are in charge who recognize this. Number two, we have to recognize that people, people need to find a way. We need to find a way to bring people together in such a way that they actually influence and impact the leadership. Not talking about lobbyists not talking about business. I'm talking about people who say this is important to us. And frankly, I wish I had a magic wand for it, but yeah. I don't. Uh, but I do think that we have to start educating little by little the importance of early childhood education as a precursor and a foundation, eliminating the 30 million word gap. We need to focus, we need to force more resources into the zero to five space which is going to help on the long-term solution. And on the short-term solution, we really need to tackle the third-grade reading deficits that we have because up to third grade, you're learning to read. And from third grade on, you're reading to learn. Right. So obviously, if you haven't learned to read very well, you're not going to learn very well. 
Well, uh, it, but all of this starts with conversations like this, Carol and Paul, and, and mobilizing people to understand how valuable what we're talking about really is. So I'm just thinking, um, Sly, all the things that we've talked about and, you know, the children who are living in poverty and the disadvantages and the importance of making sure that everybody gets a good education because it really makes a difference, you know, in your lives um, or in their lives. And I do wonder how you think about the vote in November and the outcome of that vote and how that could possibly change those things. Well, I I think that there is a lot of sentiment that the vote is being driven by whether or not you like Donald Trump. Um, And frankly, whether or not you like Donald Trump may be good for the vote in this particular instance, may affect change. But at the end of the day, that's going to wear off pretty quick and people are going to have to stand on their own merits. So the question then becomes, what are you doing for me? Okay. Uh, Winston Fisher and I, when we wrote the agenda, we deliberately wanted to point out that people should ask, uh, that people in leadership should say, here's what we are doing for you. Uh, and maybe if they can internalize that, they will stop doing so much for themselves and do more for you. But at the end of the day, uh, what we need is a new approach to leadership. We need a better and different coalition between business and government. Uh, We need more P3s. Here's an example of a P3 possibility. One P3 possibility to address the uh, child care situation would probably be more on the local level, Mm -hmm. but with businesses where government and local businesses would enter into a P3 arrangement with businesses so that those businesses engaged would have access to high-quality pre-K with some government help, subsidies, tax credits, whatever the case may be, so that then there could be some quality control. Another opportunity for P3s would be to have uh, something like what uh, Anthony Fox did with his transportation grant, challenge grant. It was about uh, access to broadband and transportation, etc. But have challenge grants so that you could have some incubators of some ideas incubators, for example, on the issue of early childhood education. How does business and government uh, combine their efforts and resources to improve our quality pre-K system? That's former Kansas City Mayor Sly James, his book, The Opportunity Agenda, A Bold Democratic Plan to Grow the Middle Class. Do you want to point out he's graduate of the Bloomberg Harvard City Leadership Initiative Education Program, sponsored by Bloomberg Philanthropies. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Still to come, she's got an agenda, too, and that's to get Broadway reopened in New York City safely. Charlotte St. Martin, president of the Broadway League, is coming up next. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. We're bringing you some of the highlights of our daily radio broadcast and podcast, and that included someone we've checked in with several times during the shutdown in New York City. This time around, Bloomberg's Paul Sweeney and I caught up with her on the heels of news that there would be no Broadway theater until at least June of 2021. Here's Charlotte St. Martin. She's president of the Broadway League. Many things to bring everyone back when it comes to the theater industry and to do it safely, and that includes included figuring out testing. The fact that there hasn't been uh, a verified rapid test that is 100% secure, which we have to have for the cast and crew until the virus is gone, and that doesn't even address the audience, which we also have to get the right products for the audience. And with no news about that now, we just felt 
that we had to be as open and transparent as possible with uh, the people that work for Broadway, work on Broadway, and our theater goers. So many of those 97,000 employees that depend on Broadway to work need to have as much advance notice now as possible so that they can try to find other work since the extension is so far out. Charlotte, what do we know about the economic impact to date on those 98,000 employees on the theater owners? I think about these beautiful theaters in Midtown Manhattan on the west side just sitting idle. Talk to us about some of the economic impacts you're hearing about. Well, for our last full season, the loss in ticket sales was almost $2 billion. And the loss to the city of New York was almost $15 billion. It's uh, everyone loses with this. And it's hard when you're talking billions to put a face to it. But in fact, you know, the face has 97,000 faces that are unable to collect a paycheck. And, you know, most of the organizations I know have reduced their staff as much as they can so that they can reopen when we have the opportunity to reopen. So it's it's not good news any way you look at it. I know. I was thinking about, and I, I guess I was reading something, too, you know, just, I mean, if you think about people who go to theater, I mean, they're all ages, but there's a lot of older theater goers, you know, lack of tourists that are coming into the country now, and then you've got old theaters where t- the idea of trying to do social distancing, it's just, you can't do it. You guys have, it's just really difficult on so many different angles. That's absolutely right. And while, you know, the average age of our audience is 42, point mm-hmm. three, I think, mm-hmm. there's still certainly a large percentage over that age and a large percentage under that age. And these are 100-year-old grand dames in many cases, our theaters and you know, as someone said to me, have you ever watched a one-minute costume change with three people making that change in the si- in the space the size of a phone booth? So you know that the okay. social distancing just doesn't work. Charlotte, are there any parts of the world where live theater has come back? I'm thinking about, you know, London or other Paris or other major markets where it's come back. Or is this kind of a universal thing? No, this is universal. You have uh, Korea is the only uh, location that I'm aware of that has reopened without social distancing. And it's a brand new theater with giant lobbies and giant stages and big spaces. And uh, they have a culture of wearing masks and, and behave much better than a lot of our lovely Americans who can't seem to put those masks on. So um, for the most part, you have a few venues that are trying social distancing, and it's just you can't financially make it work in New York City. We have 17 union contracts that um, require our theaters to be over 90% full just to return on investment for the people who make theater. And if we don't return, we don't get theater. So uh, it's it's still, we have not found a solution to socially distance in a safe way. Did you say they have to be 98% full? No, I said 90. 90, okay. Yeah, no, because I, I remember us talking in the past, and it was this whole idea of, you know, could you do something virtual or could you do something partial? But it's just, the mathematics just don't exist, Charlotte. They don't. And it, we wish it did. 
Yeah. Uh, but, you know, everybody, the besides the, the people working, I mean, the creatives, the theater owners, the producers, everything, the model would have to change. Yeah. And I think we're not ready to do that just yet because we certainly haven't. And right. when you talk to, you know, when you talk to theater goers, part of what the joy of going to theater is the shared emotion that people have. There will be a lot of changes uh, as we move forward. That's Charlotte St. Martin, who is president of the Broadway League. And yeah, lots of changes, no doubt about it. And listen, the way back is not going to be easy. And of course, she's not going to be able to get all of the shows that were on Broadway back up really quickly. It's going to take a little bit of time. But listen, 97,000 employees who depend on work in Broadway, we know this is an important industry, certainly to New York City. All right, still to come, theater is still shut, but retail shopping, certainly not. Up next, Amazon's domination. I see lots of opportunity for Amazon, certainly to grow in this country everything they've done in this country with regards to shopping they're replicating all over the world we'll hear from a former amazon insider this is bloomberg this is bloomberg business week with carol masser from bloomberg radio Well, not sure if you noticed, or more likely you did, and probably actually did some shopping on Amazon Prime Day, which was two days this week. The event expected to give the world's largest e-commerce company an early advantage over brick-and-mortar rivals ahead of Black Friday. James Thompson, he's partnered at Buybox Experts. It's a managed services agency supporting brands selling online. He's also former business head of Amazon Services. He shared some thoughts with Bloomberg's Paul Sweeney and me on Amazon's growing dominance. But we started with... A question, are we already holiday shopping? I'm fascinated with this whole preconceived notion that somehow this is the beginning of the holiday shopping season. Mm-hmm. And the reason, the reason I'm a little confounded by this is typically when people buy things on Amazon, if they're going to buy them for gifts, they send it directly to whoever they're gifting it to. And so I ask you, would you be buying Christmas presents right now in the middle of October and sending it to people two and a half months early? <laughs> no. So, you know, the, 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 the implication here is, People are spending money on themselves. They're not spending money on other people. At least that's my hypothesis. And it'll be interesting to see what happens when we get to end of November when the normal start of the holiday season kicks in. But right now, we're seeing people buying stuff that they're they're, they're enjoying themselves. So uh, I guess there's a lot of disposable income out there because the sales are absolutely through the roof, even more than we expected for Prime Day. So, James... As we think about this pandemic, it's impacted so many facets of so many people's lives, daily lives, and one of that is retail. Uh, one of those is mm-hmm. retail. Give us your sense of to kind of how this, this move towards e-commerce is accelerating here during this pandemic, if so, and then how permanent you think that might be. So obviously when everyone started uh, quarantining at home, uh, there were a few few other options for buying other than going online and one of the interesting aspects of what happened in March and April is that a lot of people not only moved more dollars online but they started buying products that they had never before gone searching for online so many of us were buying grocery products that we were used to in the grocery store and now we're stuck having to look online and if you if you did a curbside pickup or you had groceries delivered to you you for some people that was a very good good experience and they're saying gosh uh, I didn't realize my life could be so easy. I should have been doing this a long time ago. Likewise, there are companies that obviously were well-positioned to sell online, and there were lots of retailers that were not well-positioned at all. 
And so trying to play catch up and build yourself a website, figure out how to get logistics in place to deliver packages, that, that's really hard. And, and as I think about what's going to happen here later in Q4, some of the retailers who still won't have enough stores open to generate meaningful foot traffic, they're going to have to rely on their, their websites to drive traffic. And quite frankly, it's one thing to sell 10% of your volume through an online site, but what if 100% of your volume now has to go online and you don't have good inventory software and customers are saying, do you or don't you have this product? Can you get me this product quickly? Now, one of the things that we're, we're going to see, I suspect, in the next six or seven weeks as we move into mid-December, everybody except for Amazon is relying on UPS and FedEx and the Postal Service to get packages delivered. Amazon owns last-mile delivery for two-thirds of its own packages. So their ability to say to customers, we're comfortable that these products are actually going to arrive on time when you order them on December 20th, you're going to get them by 9 o'clock at night on December 24th. What about everybody else who relies on UPS and FedEx? It's going to be interesting to see how the big carriers are able to support this crushing level of demand for online order fulfillment. So it's interesting. One of the things James is just talking about, you know, can people coming onto the Amazon platform, it's so crowded. There's so much availability. There's so many different brands competing against, in effect, Amazon, some of of their brands. Mm -hmm. How do you talk, how do you consult and, and, and explain to your clients what's the best way to compete there? At the end of the day, there are some formulaic things that every company selling on Amazon needs to do. You need to have the very best listings, meaning you've got to have the right images, you've got to have video, you've got to have high-quality content that helps answer customers' questions. But that's basic blocking and tackling. Unfortunately, lots of companies selling on Amazon don't do a particularly good job there. Mm. There, there are questions around how do you make sure you stay in stock? Amazon penalizes products that, that are in stock, out of stock, in stock, out of stock. So you've got to remain in stock and be in a position where customers can consistently find your product. And then the big catch-all here is Amazon says, if your products are Prime eligible, we're going to reward you with better visibility for customers. And so, uh, you know, Amazon Prime, some people know that as FBA, some people know that as buying your Prime membership. But those are the products that are presented to consumers first and foremost on Amazon when you go looking for products. If I go searching for men's running shoes, I'm going to see all the Prime eligible products first because I'm a Prime customer, and I'm signed in, and Amazon says, I want to show you Prime-eligible offers. There are too many companies on Amazon today who have said, let me dip my toe into selling on Amazon. I'm just going to fulfill a few orders as they come in. Right. Well, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You're irrelevant unless you're Prime-eligible. It's like unbelievable. I've done it myself. I think I've even paid a little bit more because I know it's prime and I'm going to get it quickly and it's going to be easy. It's just pretty fascinating. I got to tell you, I'm listening to you, James, talk and I'm just thinking, where does Amazon go from here? You know, where is Amazon in your view? You know, you know this company so well. You see their domination and I think that's a fair word to say when it comes to retail. Where do they go in the next two years, the next five years? The reality is Amazon starts by saying, how do we do more for customers? How do we focus on what customers want? And for 25 years, they've been looking at how do we deliver as much selection as quickly as possible at low prices. And the reality is, as you grow your business and it becomes five times bigger, 50 times bigger, 500 times bigger, it gets harder and harder for Amazon to do that. And yet, they continue to step up and do that. And this year, they've demonstrated that they're not just a marketplace 
they're a massive logistics powerhouse. I mean, they they, they hired 175,000 people in, in order to do last-mile delivery of your packages. They are now at a place where they are competing with FedEx and UPS day-to-day for all the most profitable routes. And that's that's pretty staggering when you think of Amazon as being a shopping destination, but yet they support all these other things behind the scenes that consumers don't necessarily see but are critical to keeping the core business of, of a shopping site to keep that running. So, But it's expensive to do that. Up. It's really expensive to do that. It's expensive to do that, but it's actually cheaper to do it yourself if you do it at a scalable level than it is to wait around for UPS and FedEx to figure out how to grow fast enough to keep up with Amazon. And that's exactly what we saw when COVID kicked in in March is the UPSs and FedExs, they can't keep up with the increase in demand that Amazon's experiencing. And quite frankly, Amazon doesn't have to make any money with their fulfillment capabilities. They just have to be able to make sure the pipe is there and they can push packages through the pipe. Mm. And that's one of the beautiful things about Amazon. You know, the same thing happened when they built out their AWS capability. That wasn't meant to be a profitable business. It was meant to be back-end services that would support huge numbers of customers flocking to the site. You know, on Black Friday, we need to have essentially infinite capacity. Amazon said, we'll build it ourselves. And then they discovered, oh, we can now sell excess capacity to someone else. They're going to do the same thing with logistics. Eventually, they're going to be in a place here in the next year or two to start offering more shipping services to retailers who sell packages to people not just on the Amazon site. That's a nice, tidy business. We know Amazon has gotten into the healthcare business, starting with how do you build out better, uh, better options for Amazon employees. But the reality is, if Amazon gets this figured out, that's another trillion-dollar business where Amazon will say, I'd like a slice of the pie, please. So I see lots of opportunity for Amazon certainly to grow in this country, but everything they've done in this country with regards to shopping, they're replicating all over the world. They've got over 15 marketplaces now, different countries they're moving into where they're saying, we can do the same thing and help local consumers in these other countries get huge, huge amounts of selection at low prices delivered quickly. I did Everybody say domination. Didn't I say domination? <laughs> yes. Yeah, and the legal scholars, you know, the antitrust <laughs> lawyers' ears perked up. So it's interesting. You One of the things, Carol, and you point out that it's expensive, but I'll also point out they've got $70 billion of cash on the balance sheet, $40 billion of free cash flow, right. so I guess they can afford it. Uh, James, one business where they haven't been so successful is the grocery business. Is that just a sideshow for them, or, or do you think that they want to get bigger, better, stronger in that retail space? They need to get better, and I'll tell you why. If you look at your wallet, the share of your wallet that goes towards grocery is a sizable chunk of of your spend. And it's also one of those purchases you make at least once or twice a week. You're having to think about, where do I go to buy my groceries? Amazon wants to be in a position where consumers say, I need to buy something. Let me pick Amazon first as my channel and let's see what they have. If Amazon can get enough grocery selection in place, available for fast delivery, then Amazon will be able to get consumers to spend that part of their wallet on Amazon. And that's two, maybe two, three times a week that consumers again are reminded, hey, Amazon's the place I need to go to buy everything else as well. So at the end of the day, grocery may not be a very profitable business for Amazon in and of itself, but it's a constant reminder and it's a constant ad for consumers to come back to buy everything else that may make Amazon more money. 
And we certainly are heading to Amazon for just about everything else. Certainly feels that way. All right, that's James Thompson, partner at Buybox Experts and former business head of Amazon Services. That wraps up our first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Carol Masser. More ahead in our next hour, including the $120 billion idea behind this year's Nobel Prize in economics. Plus, we'll wrap up with some lighter fare millennials shaping the beverage industry and a professional poker player on making better choices. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Carol Masser, along with Bloomberg's Paul Sweeney. Plenty ahead for you in this hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week, our second hour here. And we talked a lot about working from home, working remotely this week on our daily radio show, including catching up with Stoke Talent CEO Shahar Arez. We talked about shadow HR and properly managing freelancers working remotely. We also talked a lot about the growth in the gig economy. Plus, pro poker player Annie Duke. Man, poker is definitely in the family there. She's got a new book out, How to Decide, Simple Tools for Making Better Choices. We begin this hour, though, with a walk around the block with our own Peter Coy, and a trifecta of his stories as only Bloomberg Business Week economics editor Peter Coy can do. We talked about the president in economics, we talked about the Fed, and we also talked about the Nobel Prize in economics. Bloomberg's Paul Sweeney and I got more from Peter and Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber. The the story that he, he just had a quick take on was actually Trump speaking to the the country's economic clubs, which yeah. so I thought was actually kind of interesting. And, and Peter, what, what was your takeaway from uh, from getting to watch that? Well, it's not his typical audience. It's a bunch of rich people, some of them richer than he is, um, generally prosperous business people who belong to the economic clubs in Washington, New York, uh, Chicago, Pittsburgh, uh, Florida, and so on. And he didn't seem as comfortable with that audience as one might expect, since they're mostly one percenters who generally agree with the Republican agenda of tax cuts and deregulation. There were times when he sounded even a bit defensive and worried that he didn't have their support. He, he called out internationalists, lobbyists, uh, drug company executives, all of whom he presumed were part of his audience. Peter, what do we know about... Uh, the president's current standing uh, with big business, with Wall Street, with folks who benefit from uh, the Trump tax cut? Well, we, they like the tax cut. They like but the we've, tax. we've seen some uh, critical, pretty critical comments coming up from organizations like the Business Roundtable, which represents CEOs of some of America's biggest companies. And very often, CEOs don't want to be on the line themselves criticizing any administration, Republican or Democratic. But, they will sometimes hide behind the voice of a roundtable like that, so they can't be sort of safety and numbers kind of thing. And some of the statements from the business roundtable have been fairly critical of the president. And th- things like, why can't we get uh, another round of stimulus done? Uh, so this was, this was interesting. It, it continued that thing. And you know, uh, one of the things he said was, hey, I know some of you out there are Democrats, and I, d- I don't understand what you're thinking. You know, some really bad things are going to happen if Joe Biden gets elected. So, uh, Peter, the other story that you have in the current issue of the magazine is, is not about the president at all, but sort of uh, uh, another elephant in the room, which is the, f- the Fed. 
and and I thought you had a um, sort of a big idea. You spent some time thinking about it, and it's ultimately about the the Fed being basically the most dovish Fed in the history yeah. of yeah. the Fed. Can you can you tell us more about how why wh- why that matters so much right now? But just a reminder: dovish means that you're soft on inflation and more worried about uh, unemployment, or the hawk would be the opposite. And the Fed traditionally was hawkish. It was probably more hawkish than the president, whoever was in office at the time, or Congress. And it was almost designed to be that way because you wanted to have the central banker be the tough guy, you know, the enforcer, the cop, who would try to make sure that the economy did not overheat uh, and causing uh, runaway inflation. But now we're in the opposite circumstance where we're actually worried about inflation being too low and the economy being chronically weak. And the Fed has moved around to being, uh, and it's not just because Jay Powell is the chair of the Fed now. It was starting to happen under uh, Bernanke and Yellen as well. But I think with the actions of this past spring in response to the pandemic, and then now with Jay Powell jawboning Congress to do new stimulus, and the interest rates being at zero and the new dovish language coming out of the Fed in August, it does seem as though it's the most dovish Fed in a century, namely forever for the Fed. Well, and it could work out, right? You you kind of play out the dream scenario, Peter. You know, if all this messaging yeah. from the Fed works, I mean, right? The economy improves, workers get more money, consumers yeah. open up their wallets, um, you know, and we all live happy lives <laughs> right. if it all works That's out. That's obviously the optimistic scenario that the stimulus works and inflation moves up to 2%, which is the Fed's goal, and maybe even goes a little above it. That's the new thing that the Fed yeah. is doing now. It's saying it can actually tolerate or even welcome inflation overshooting the 2% target to make up for periods of undershooting. And that's going to be very interesting to see, assuming inflation does eventually get over above 2%, whether the Fed will be so willing to tolerate that after well, all. Well, you do wonder, Peter, right, is that potentially then the Fed being irresponsible? Cause, yeah. right? Irresponsible can, can... is a funny word here because <laughs> Paul Krugman said that, you know, the Fed almost has to, or any central bank almost has to commit to being irresponsible. And by irresponsible, he means, you know, more willing to target inflation than a traditional central banker would have been. Okay, Peter, we're going to change gears yet again because um, Sunday night we have uh, some new economics uh, professors win the Nobel Prize, yes. and you also, uh, I thought, scared up an interesting angle about that and, and sort of their work around au- auctions. How, how central uh, of a contribution have they made to sort of what has unfolded in, in auctions that we, some we see in our daily lives yeah. and, and others that we, we may not get to see well, as much? We don't necessarily see the auctions that are happening for, for example, uh, radio spectrum, but they affect our daily lives in a big way. Some interesting thoughts about the uh, Nobel Prize winner in economics. That, of course, was Bloomberg Businessweek economics editor Peter Coy, along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber. Check out Peter's full stories. You can find them on the Bloomberg Terminal and, of course, at Bloomberg.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Businessweek. While on the subject of economics, that may increasingly include a world where workers are not at the office and keeping track of them. More on that with the CEO of Stoke Talent. That's coming up next. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. 
Well, as Bloomberg City Lab recently reported, the pandemic has been a grand global experiment in the costs and benefits of a remote workforce. But long before the coronavirus hit, many people worked from outside offices. We're talking a lot about remote working and remote workers because of COVID-19. Shahar Rez is co-founder and CEO of Stoke Talent, an on-demand management platform for companies to manage their on-demand and non-payroll workforce. He joined Bloomberg's Paul Sweeney and me from Israel about the workforce trend that was, truth be told, already here. Way before the pandemic, we started seeing this way towards remote work. Uh, even in 2018 already, there were 2,500 companies in the U.S. without offices, which, which sounds like a big number. And we saw the trend heading that way. Um, and we're certain this is heading towards a place where most companies will have remote workforce and a significant portion of the workers as independent contractors within uh, five to ten years. In fact, Bureau of Labor Statistics forecasted that by 2030, 60% of uh, U.S. workforce will be freelancers and independent contractors. Wow. Um, and then came the pandemic and kind of accelerated that, what we thought was going to take five years into five months. And because everyone's now a remote employee, everyone's working from home. Doesn't matter if you're sitting in an office in California or sitting, you know, in your home in Iowa, you can do the same work. And so it opened a world of opportunities, and we're seeing now uh, an acceleration of what was bound to happen with alternative employment arrangements. All right. So, Shahar, with more and more uh, companies' employees working remotely, whether they're employees or freelancers, my guess is that's kind of creating new management challenges from an HR perspective. What are some of the issues that you, your clients are seeing, and, and what are some of your solutions? Um, so I'll kind of distinguish between uh, remote work, which is you know an employee that just doesn't come every day to the office, I think the biggest challenge uh, that we're seeing is really with this uh, the transition that organizations are having to a flexible uh, employment arrangement where you have 20, 30% of the workforce that's not really formal company employees, independent contractors, freelancers, gig workers, service providers. In fact, that is becoming uh, the norm within organization. And again, remote work has accelerated it. The biggest challenge that we're seeing there is what we now call um, shadow HR. Um, and we took the term shadow HR, kind of borrowed it from a term that was created um, in the mid-2000s uh, in the world of what was called shadow IT. Now, shadow IT was coined during that time um, as a result of departments, teams, and individuals within corporates bypassing formal IT uh, uh, processes and policies and instructions, if you will, and start buying services and application outside IT because they wanted to move faster. That resulted in significant challenges as data leakage, performance issues, um, overspending, inefficiencies in the organization. And we're seeing something very similar happening now with what we call this shadow HR. Shadow HR means that there are people that are doing work for the company but are not governed by any process in the company. Most HR organizations are um, governing, if you will, um, W-2 employees, formal company employees. But with 20, 30% of the workforce, not really company employees, not really on the payroll, these freelancers, independent contractors, they like the government. These non-employees, they don't have a single owner in the company. It kind of falls between the HR team, the procurement team, the finance team, the legal team. There's a lot of different people that need to come into play, and none of them really own it. And so a lot of things start going wrong or potentially going wrong. When, when that is the case. 
But this is where you guys um, come in, right? Because this is, I mean, this is essentially what you do, right? You're able to kind of track these remote workers. Correct. So what we've built at Stoke is really the ability for companies to have a single source of truth to streamline the entire process from onboarding uh, um, freelancers, independent contractors, service providers, making sure they're signed the right legal docs, making sure that the right budgets are allocated, making sure payments are done correctly, and then offboarding them when the time is right. We're keeping all the back office um, breaks and balances, uh, checks and balances in place. Because if that's not the case, what we're seeing happening more and more in companies, by the way, when we talk to companies, mm-hmm. uh, we talk to the CFO or CEO, the most common response is, we don't really have contractors or freelancers. And the reality is there's three to five X what they think they have because it's not managed anywhere. And the results are um, a either overspend, budget overspend, um, or, which is a much more severe case, plenty of compliance issues. There's really three levels of compliance with independent contractors. One is legal compliance. Have they signed the right legal docs? NDA, no compete, IP ownership. Right. And we are seeing cases when no one's signing the papers, and then guess what? It catches up to you later on. When a company goes to a financing round or an IPO, all of a sudden a freelancer stands up and says, hey, I never signed over IP. Should send, you know, I, I have a part in, the, in this company. Um, data protection is a big one. Um, Shahar, one thing I wanted to ask you, I mean, you've held senior positions at VMware, Hewlett-Packard. You've been in the software and IT-related space for a long time. What do you make of what we're hearing about Silicon Valley? And, you know, you are hearing a lot of those big tech companies say, you want to work from home for the rest of, you know, your life? That's fine. You can do it forever. Um, It's a trend that you, you know, what are you hearing from your colleagues in Silicon Valley about that this will really ultimately stick? Um, so, as I mentioned, I don't think this is new. I just think we're seeing an acceleration. This trend started, uh, I don't know if it started in Silicon Valley, but obviously it was popular in Silicon Valley where people were working once or twice a week from home. Um, and we started seeing more and more super successful companies that are were built in a distributed manner. Companies like HashiCorp, uh, Elastic, WordPress, and again, 2,500 companies were built that way. And over time, more companies moved to that that operating mall. Um, I don't think it's going back to the way it was. I think that companies need to realize this is the new normal, fully distributed organizations, and to put in the right processes to support that organization because it is a fundamental change. Um, a lot of us were used to seeing people in the office, whiteboarding, brainstorming in person. Mm-hmm. A lot of that is not going to come back. It's going to be... Once a quarter, once a month maybe, this means we'll meet together, but most of the time it is going to be a fully distributed organization. And I think it has dramatic implications, not on the workforce. I think the work will still get done. I think there's two areas that's going to be significant change. A, how do companies for the first time in a while will start measuring output? Uh, you know, in the software industry for years, uh, companies have been trying to measure, how do you measure engineering output? And there's no real answer for that. And so right now, when people are already know it, how do you measure their productivity? That's Shahar Rez, co-founder and CEO of Stoke Talent. He's talking about productivity. We've heard a lot about that from various leaders, including J.P. Morgan's Jamie Dimon. Some say it's taking a hit. Others say it's doing just fine as workers work from home. Well, coming up, one trend we've noticed with all of us working from home, we started drinking more. Some trends from millennials who are out to change the beverage world. That's next. This is Bloomberg.
This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. Well, it's the weekend. Time to kick back maybe with a tall, cool one and maybe even a cool game. We've got two interviews on this in the next 30 minutes. First up, a collection of millennials thinking about the next generation of drinkers and the brands that will be in demand. Bloomberg's Paul Sweeney and I checked in with Amy Stedman, founder and COO at Future Proof Beatbox Beverages, and heard about their strategy. But first up, we had to know how this relatively new brand got through the pandemic. When all this started, we were nervous, just as everybody was, but our primary distribution is in channels such as grocery, liquor store, and convenience stores. And what you did see was all of the dollars being spent on alcohol shifting from restaurants and bars into those channels. And so we've actually been experiencing record sales months every month of the pandemic. And have been able to, you know, fortunately turn it around and, and raise money for Small Business Relief Fund and ACLU and other groups as well. So that's been the silver lining of all that. So Amy, when I walk into a liquor store these days, I'm just overwhelmed by the number of products, you know, really competing for shelf space. It's just so many new products. It's not just beer, wine, and, and spirits. There's everything, hard seltzer. And I guess that's kind of the... Uh, some of the newer products. How do you get mind share, market share in such a crowded market? What's your marketing strategy? Absolutely. So, I mean, what you're seeing is the results of huge trends in consumer drinking, right? Millennials are shifting away from traditional beer to wine and flavored items like beatbox. And the bigger brands are scrambling, trying to find things that are going to work. But what they're missing is that key authenticity that millennials and Gen Z are also looking for. You know, the big brands will try and slap a new label on an outdated idea, try to make it cool to these demographics. But, you know, with our brand, we sought to create the most authentic experience possible. With, you know, we use social media, brand ambassadors, and other listening tools to stay extremely connected to our consumers. And I think that's really what's made us stand out among all of those different new entrants like you've mentioned. Hey, one thing I want to ask you, because your background is really fascinating to me. Um, First of all, it's a woman who's got two male business partners and, you know, creating a company. I'm curious about that experience. I'm also experienced you're a first generation U.S. citizen that, you know, you moved here from Syria when you were about 10 years old. So I'm just curious about, you know, being an immigrant in this country, creating a company and what the experience has been for you. Yeah, so my parents had corporate jobs when we lived in the Middle East. My dad's from the UK and my mom's from Syria. And they actually quit their jobs when I was 10 years old to pursue entrepreneurship in this country. And so we came over and I watched them grow their businesses through high school and college. It was a vending machine business with those you know, bubbles and stuffed animals and things like that. And so that was their business. And then when it came time for me to go to business school and and start my company, I was incredibly flattered that, you know, my business partners decided they they were not going to start a next generation alcohol beverage company without including a female founder and having diversity on their uh, ownership. So I really appreciated them recruiting me to join the team. And, um, you know, certainly being a female founder in the alcohol beverage industry is, <laughs> it had its rocky moments. I mean, I'm often mistaken for, you know, a promotional model when I'm <laughs> saying, no, I'm actually the owner of the company. Um, people, oh. you know, re- have a reaction. But my, my reaction to that is, you know, the more that I can be on things like this and show up on panels and be mentors to other female entrepreneurs that, you know, we can make a change in our generation and, you know, the next group of female founders, and, and there have been many, many new women founders of alcohol beverages, right. uh, alcohol beverage companies recently. 
Uh, you know, so I see that as a, a great change, and I hope that we can continue to be the change that we want to see in this industry and encourage more diversity of ownership as well. well and I'm a- super grateful to be an American citizen. It's a, a wonderful place to be. I know we have our issues, but this is an incredible country. Beatbox Beverages is a product that we launched first time back in 2013. We really found that it was resonating with millennials in terms of being eco-friendly, portable, great flavors. And so we've been really growing with that brand. Uh, this past year, our company has actually transitioned from beatbox beverages to future-proof brands, and we're piloting two new brands in fast-growing categories in alcohol as well, Corkless in alternative packaging wine and Brizzy in the seltzer space. All right, wait a minute. Okay, we're going way too fast. you got to go back to Shark Tank because, I mean, <laughs> we all know that brand. We've all, I, you know, every once in a while I go down a rabbit hole and I watch a couple, you know, one after another because it's just fascinating to see, to me, entrepreneurs, you know, pitching their business to, you know, this panel of individuals who've got money to spend and who understand what it takes to make a good business. What was that experience like? Because you actually got Mark Cuban to, I think, pitch in about a million dollars or so. Absolutely, which was one of the biggest deals on the show of all time back then. But, um, you know, we we started the company very bare bones. You know, we made it ourselves, distributed ourselves. Uh, We were doing, you know, probably six to nine hours of in-store samplings a weekend. And we would always get that comment of, you should be on Shark Tank. You should be on Shark Tank (laughs) when people saw the product. Yeah, Shark Tank, definitely a good idea. That's Amy Stedman, founder and chief operating officer at Future Proof Beatbox Beverages, with some advice for entrepreneurs. And I got to say, not too shabby, too, to have Mark Cuban backing you. All right, still to come, safe to say Amy and her team had lots of decisions to make while building their business. Coming up, former pro poker player Annie Duke on how to stack the deck and make better choices. That's straight ahead on Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. So let's wrap up this week with Annie Duke. She holds a World Series of Poker Gold bracelet. She played the game for years, retired in 2012 after making over $4 million in tournament winnings. She's now an inspirational speaker, author, and putting her efforts to good causes, including the Alliance for Decision Education. She's got a new book out this week, How to Decide, Simple Tools for Making Better Choices. Bloomberg's Paul Sweeney and I talked with her about making decisions, education, and of course, of course, the game. I was a graduate student at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, doing my PhD work actually in cognitive science, and um, I was full—I was like intending to become a professor. And right at the end of my five years there, as I was about to finish, um, and actually as I was going out for job interviews, I uh, got sick and I needed to take some time off, and I didn't I didn't quite know what to do with my time as I was taking a year off, and I really needed money. Um, and it and my brother Howard Letter had had already been playing poker for about 10 years before then and was the one who actually suggested to me that maybe I play. It wasn't totally out of the blue because when I was in graduate school, he would occasionally bring me out mm-hmm. to like Las Vegas on a vacation um, and give me some money to go play poker and some pointers. So I did know something about the game, but he's the one who got me into playing professionally. So, all right, so you have that experience as a poker player, uh, success as a poker player. When you retired from the poker game, what did you do next? Why did you retire, and, and what were you looking to do? Yeah, so actually, uh, the, it's not quite what did I do next, it, because uh, it was what was I doing in parallel of my career. So uh, I retired in 2012. 2002, um, uh, the founder asked me to come speak to his traders, 
about how poker might inform uh, their decision making. And that was about eight years into my poker career. And it was the first time that I started thinking pretty explicitly about how my work in cognitive psychology could inform um, poker thinking and vice versa, and that that might help to really understand both the things that frustrate human decision making and the things that make it uh, might make it better. So that was in 2002. I really loved thinking about that conversation. And for the next 10 years, and I was doing talks and um, consulting and, and starting to help people think through how to become better decision makers to improve their strategy around decision making. In 2012, I retired from poker to do this full time. And now I consult full time, I speak full time, and I write full time. So let me just tell you, this book is like the perfect timing because we could need some help. I think a lot of people could use some help in terms of making better decisions. Talk to us a little bit about the work you're doing for the Alliance for Decision Education. Tell us about it and what it's it's setting out to. We just had a really smart conversation with Sly James, the former mayor of Kansas City, about what we need to do in terms of education. But I'd love your, your thoughts on it. Oh, gosh, yeah. Thank you so much for highlighting the Alliance. So uh, essentially what, what our mission is at the Alliance is to bring decision education into K-12 uh, education. So the way w- that we think about it is that, you know, better decisions lead to better lives, which ultimately lead to a better society. And as you were asking, you know, in terms of what's going on with decision making recently, I think that we can see that we lack decision education in K-12 um in our K through 12 system. So, so I think sort of the way that I would put it is we have this requirement for kids to learn trigonometry, which like if you're going to become an engineer, I suppose might be important and, but you could take that in college. And yet we're not teaching people just simple things like statistics and probability or what's a habit or what would a good decision process look like. All things which we think would have a much deeper impact on their decisions they make. So, you know, we'd like to get more Kahneman in there you know, and less trigonometry in there. Uh, I would think back to my high school days. That would be a welcome change. I love trig. I really did. So <laughs> sure that's okay. <laughs> uh, Annie, so I'm thinking about your book, again, How to Decide Simple Tools for Making Better Choices. When I'm faced with the decision, I'm, I think my probably my fallback position is just go with your gut. Like I don't even take out a piece of paper and do pros and cons. I'm guessing that's not the optimal strategy. Um, what should I be thinking about? Yeah, so I think that this is exactly why uh, we need decision education, because this idea of going with your gut seems to hold kind of a special place. Like, people think gut decision makers are somehow uh, special decision makers, but it, it's actually much more that they're random decision makers. So, um, <laughs> so the, the issue is, I'm not saying that your gut can't get you to a good place. It's that the requirements of a good decision process are that you actually think about what's the information that I need to know in order to inform this decision, what can I find out? What are the different options I'm thinking about? And then you need to do some future predicting that's somewhat explicit, which is, you know, what are the ways I think this could turn out and how likely are those things to occur? And having gone through that, particularly if you can keep a record of it, it's really helpful because then after you sort of get the results of the decision that you make, you can actually look back and say, you know, did I have the right information? Was I thinking about the future in the right way? And that allows you then to become a better decision maker going forward. You get to learn. But with your gut, you can't do that because it's essentially a black box by definition. It's not something I can look at. The other problem with gut decision-making is I can't teach it to somebody else. And particularly if you're in a business with a team, it's not very helpful as leadership to say I go with my gut because that doesn't improve the quality of your team's decision-making since they don't have your gut. 
you'd rather have a really good decision process that's going to improve the quality of the decisions throughout your organization. So is it like a pro and con list on steroids, basically? Well, it's got a little bit of an element of a pro and con list, but okay. uh, I actually wish that people would kind of throw their pros and cons <laughs> list away because we're all very aware now of the influence of cognitive bias, right? I mean, thinking fast and slow is not a bestseller for nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and the problem with a pros and cons list is it's actually a, a decision tool that would amplify the cognitive bias. Because you're just kind of making this list of, like, what do I like about the decision? What don't I like about the decision? And there's, there's no explicit sense of, like, how bad are the pros or the cons or which cons am I supposed to put on there or which pros am I supposed to put on there or how likely are any of those things to occur. And all of those things are things that you need in order to make a good decision. So basically what happens with pros and cons list is that you sort of already got an inkling of whether you'd like to make the decision or not. And then the pros and cons list just is a way for you to express that preference that you have. So instead of doing pros and cons lists, it would be better if you actually thought about what are the different outcomes that that I think could occur, like the reasonable set of possibilities. And yes, some of those will be good and some of those will be bad. But then you can think about how good are those things, how bad are those things, and how likely are those to occur. And Mm -hmm. that's information that doesn't exist in a pros and cons list. And then you can just compare the upside and the downside. And the other thing is that you can start to see the risk. Because with a pros and cons list, like, what am, I don't know if it's got more cons. Am I supposed to just say yes to it? What if the cons are like a hangnail, you know, but the pros, <laughs> you know, I don't know. Like, I don't know how to compare that stuff unless I actually think about magnitude and probability. Hey, Annie, how about the variable of time? Sometimes I have to make a snap decision, and sometimes I can, you know, take your time, and sometimes you can maybe even make a decision in advance. How do you account for that? Yeah, so time is actually really important, and it's a very important piece because when we think about gut decision-making, often we're using our gut for decisions that we should actually be taking quite a bit of time on, and we'll use like a big analytic process for decisions that we should be taking no time on, like what should we order off a menu? We've all been around those people, right? You might be one that takes like 15 minutes to order off a menu. <laughs> so, um, so there's a couple of things that tell us how much time we should take on a decision. One is that sometimes we just have a deadline. Right? If you don't decide within the next week, the option is going to go away and you're not going to have the opportunity anymore. And then obviously you just need to, you need to make the decision within that time period. But the other way that we can think about like how much time we should take is just through two frameworks. One is how quittable is the decision. That would be like the two-way door type of decision that Jeff Bezos would talk about. Um, can we reverse it? Um, and we really care about that because the more that you can reverse the decision, if you don't like the outcome, the faster you can go because then you can just mitigate the downside. Um, The other thing is just what's the impact of the decision. So if I'm thinking about what to order off a menu and I'm sitting with someone who's taking 15 minutes to do so, I can just say to them, hey, let's just say your meal was really terrible. Are you going to care in a month? And their answer (laughs) is going to be no, and I'm going to be like, can you just pick that? And that will actually speed the decision up. So think about impact and optionality, and that will get you to the right amount of time. That's professional poker player Annie Duke. Check out her book, How to Decide, Simple Tools for Making Better Choices. And that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Carol Master, along with Bloomberg's Paul Sweeney. Be sure to tune in to our daily radio show, Monday through Friday, starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. You can also check out our conversations. They're on our daily podcast feed. Find that wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, too, the show is on YouTube. Just search Bloomberg Global News. And be sure to check out our Bloomberg 
Bloomberg Business Week Extra podcast. This week, someone who understands the fast food space. It's Cliff Hudson, former chairman and CEO of Oklahoma-based Sonic Drive-In. He spent several decades at the company. He's got a new book out, Master of None, How a Jack-of-All-Trades Can Still Reach the Top. Bloomberg Business Week, of course, available on newsstands now on the Bloomberg Terminal and online at Bloomberg.com. Stay safe, everyone. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you next week. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.